Welcome to the sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you have questions related to what you hear today, or just want to find out more about the ministries at First United Methodist Church, please visit us online at fumcbentonville.org, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Good morning. Here today, the scripture from the book of Ruth. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who was more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him to her bosom, and he became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you this morning. Um, It has just been great to be in this church and to be welcomed by your hospitality and also to get to enjoy all the beauty of Bentonville. We got to go to Crystal Bridges and the Listening Forest and the Momentary and also got to enjoy breakfast with Michelle yesterday. Um, And it was just really cool to hear about how this congregation is thinking about and talking about who you're called to be and what your identity is as a collective and also to share about what your your heart is what you're drawn to um, to serve in this community and beyond Um, and so we're just really excited to be with you my name is elizabeth mccormick and this is my husband david mccormick and we are here with our daughters eva and annie and we are missionaries serving through the General Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church. And that is our worldwide relief and mission agency, present and working in over 115 different countries. And we have missionaries and partners working in the areas of church growth and evangelism, disaster response and recovery, global health, and also sending missionaries. We represent the connected arm of the more than 10 million United Methodist people that we have around the world, working together to make disciples of Jesus Christ. David and I started our missionary journey with our family um, back in 2016. And I say our missionary journey, I mean our official missionary journey. Uh, Back in 2016, we were sent from the Louisiana Conference and were commissioned at the General Conference um, in Portland, Oregon. And then we were sent to work alongside the Igreja Methodista Unida de Mozambique, the United Methodist Church of Mozambique, um, which has a history that goes back over a hundred years that that the United Methodist present has been present in Mozambique for over a hundred years. David was sent to run a hospital, um, and it was a really big hospital. Um, And I was sent to be a pharmacist at that hospital. But as as any of you know, who's ever worked in different countries and cultures, maybe through mission, things don't always go according to plan. And so 
I ended up working in water, sanitation, and hygiene, um, and then also helped a group of local artists start a business. After we finished that work, we were called back to the United States to serve as mission advocates for the South Central jurisdiction. So that's Missouri, down to Louisiana, all the way to New Mexico, that whole area, um, which includes the Navajo, part of the Navajo Indian Nation um, and the Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference. And now our work is to resource congregations and conferences and also to connect churches to the work that's being done around the world through our United Methodist Connection. Um, and this work is rooted in our theology of mission, um, the participation in Missio Dei, God's mission. This theology affirms that the transforming power belongs to God, and that global ministries is in mission to bear witness to what God has done, is doing, and will do, and then to learn from what God is doing in every nation where Christians are gathering. It affirms that God has been present long before we arrive, and that God is at work presently in all of these places, and that God's work will continue long after we leave. And on this second Sunday of Lent, here I am, I feel like it's important not just to be reminded of our mortality, but to be reminded that through our death, God's transformation is fulfilled. It's our hope today, through examining the book of Ruth, we can share with you how mission is a firm avenue for legacy, for your church, and for our greater denomination. So today's scripture, we kind of began with the end, the last chapter, the last verses, essentially the punchline of the story of Ruth, so to say. But knowing where we end up, I believe, helps us to better prepare for the beginning. Have you ever been reading a book and it was so exciting or so intense that you had to skip ahead a couple of pages just to make sure that the character survives or that the story comes out okay? Well, that's kind of what we've done here. Now that we know how it all ends, we can go back and focus on the nuances of the previous verses. So let's go back to the beginning. In the first chapter, we find two Israelites, Elimelech and Naomi, two of God's chosen people having to leave Bethlehem, their birthland, because of a famine. They're leaving not because they want to, but because they have to. Not because of something they did or didn't do, but because what's out of their control. They find themselves environmental refugees forced out of their homes for the survival of their two sons and for them. They go to neighboring Moab, where the relationship between the tribe of Judah and Moab was, to say it kindly, strained. Soon after arriving, Elimelech dies. We don't know why. Whether it was sickness or an accident or a conflict, we just know that Naomi is left with her two sons. These sons grow and take Moabite wives and after 10 years in this land as immigrants, the two sons die, leaving the three women alone and unprotected. At this point, Naomi is done. She's spent. She's endured so much loss and challenges, she even changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. Per the custom of the time, she tells her now widowed daughter-in-laws to go home, back to their father's house, back to the places where they grew up. At first, they refuse. They say, no, 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 we'll stay with you. But Naomi is persistent, and she convinces one of them to leave. But Ruth 
Ruth wouldn't budge. And then Ruth says probably her most well-known and beautiful lines of the book of Ruth. Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well. Now, while we credit this emotional outburst as an outpouring of love and devotion to Naomi, which it is, I can't help but think it's also a statement of a scared and desperate woman. I don't think we properly give attention to how this highlights the trauma she's experienced and the vulnerability Ruth was feeling of being sent away. Why is she willing to give up everything she knows? Why is she willing to give up her culture, her belief system, even her gods, to avoid going back home? How hard would it be for her to find another husband, someone else to claim her after a marriage to a foreigner failed and she was returned broken? In her desperation, she cries to Naomi not to cast her aside, and she agrees to return with her. They travel to Bethlehem, widowed and poor. Naomi sends Ruth out to find food. Ruth joins a group of women in similar situations, picking leftovers in a grain field. And then Boaz enters on the scene. Boaz is the owner of the field. What do we know about Boaz? Well, we can tell he's a wealthy man as he has a flourishing field, many employees to help with his harvest. And because he rode in after the workday started, we know he holds a position of power. We can also assume he's a good man. He seems to treat his workers well, and they seem to like him. He appears to keep track of who's in and around his field as he notices Ruth, the newcomer, right away. And we know he understands and abides the laws of Moses, as it outlined in Deuteronomy, to care for the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. Because when he asks about who Ruth is, the worker responds that she's been with the other ladies since morning gleaning the fields. This was the practice of allowing those with a steady job to gather in the areas that had been picked over by the workers, essentially the leftovers of the yield. We know he's well-connected because when the workers tell him who Ruth is, he has already heard the story of Naomi and Ruth before seeing any of them. So that's Boaz. But there's one more extremely important detail about who he is. It turns out that Boaz is Naomi's cousin. Boaz was impressed with how Ruth was caring for her. Boaz gives her special treatment. He feeds Ruth from his table. He gives Ruth extra grain. He allows her to pick from the choice areas and tells her to stay close to his people to keep safe so that no one would harm her. Because remember, not only is it unsafe for a woman without a family, but a foreign woman with no one was even a greater target for assault. When Naomi hears about Ruth's day, she encourages Ruth to continue this relationship, to keep putting herself in the path of Boaz, because as family, she recognizes Boaz could be the next of kin who would redeem her. Now hold on to that redeem her part. We'll come back to it. So Ruth returns to the field each day until they've gathered all the grain. On the day of the beating of the wheat, Naomi concocts this plan. She tells Ruth to get dressed up in her Sunday best, put on some perfume, and go to where Boaz was on the threshing floor and lie next to him after he has fallen asleep. He and his men, after gathering all the grain, 
had separated it from the chaff and were now guarding the wheat until the next opportunity to get it to market. They wouldn't leave it there unattended because they were concerned with thieves coming in and taking it. So they stood guard. Let me ask you, if you've worked hard all day and you can't leave your crop unattended and it's a bunch of guys just hanging out waiting for the store to open, what do you do? Let me put it a different way. So you've worked hard all week and now it's Saturday and the hogs are playing in a couple hours and the weather outside is beautiful. What do you do? That's right. They had a party. When Boaz had eaten and drank his fill, he went off to bed. That's when Ruth goes and lies at his feet. She does this stealthily, avoiding being seen by anyone. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and sees her there. He is surprised and asks her what she wants. Ruth replies, spread your cloak over me, for you are next of kin. Essentially, she says, marry and protect me. Boaz is floored by this act, which he sees as another expression of Ruth's loyalty, keeping the traditions of the time to continue the family line. Boaz agrees, and after making sure no one else either had the right or wanted to take his place, he marries Ruth and acts as her kinsman redeemer. This kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to the various laws of the Torah, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or in need. Now, this is the part that I think is the most interesting of the book of Ruth. Because Boaz is basically saying, look, I know you've had it tough. I know things didn't turn out the way you wanted them to. I know you're in a new place. There's no one to watch over you. But instead of saying, good luck, or God bless, or I'm sending you my thoughts and my prayers, Boaz is willing to redeem Ruth. Not because he has to, because he chooses to. Not because it's easy, but because it's the right thing to do according to their customs. You see, Boaz himself is a product of redemption and radical hospitality. He's experienced the same mercy he's now showing to Ruth. Boaz is the son of Salmon and Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who hid Joshua's spies and helped them escape. Boaz heard the stories of growing up as a foreigner in a distant culture. He's seen the difficulties in fitting in, and he knows what it's like to live on the margins of society. And he knew the value when someone comes alongside you. His is the legacy from Abraham to Jacob, through Joseph to Moses, and across the Jordan River with Joshua. Boaz is part of the movement, both in household and commitment which represents the past, the present, and through his acts of redemption, he continues through his son Obed, the lineage of Jesus Christ, the great redeemer. How powerful is it? How powerful is it to see how God moves through the book of Ruth, codifying how God has been, is now, and will be in every place we go. We see this today the redeeming and transforming power of Jesus through our example and through our stories, which are our legacies. We are a part of this story, both as followers and disciples of Christ, but as United Methodists. Our history runs deep. Our present spans every place God is present. And our future, through the provenient grace of God, is one of hope.
And today, we continue to see the selfless acts of redemption through mission around the world. Through our missionaries and mission volunteers serving in over 60 different countries, we have doctors who provide life-saving interventions to whole communities in Angola and Nepal. We have pastors building uh, churches out of small homes in rural mountains in Southeast Asia and places where it's not even okay to say that you're a missionary. We have farmers using their skills and partnerships to redeem communities from hunger and financial poverty in Mozambique and lots of other African countries. We have early responders right here in Arkansas and other states that are trained by UMCOR to respond to disasters in their communities and beyond. We have volunteer engineers who save buildings used in mission from erosion, from being swept into the ocean. And we even have missionary accountants redeeming and reconciling the books. Sometimes it is redeeming the books. <laughs> and all of this is done through our United Methodist Connection around the world. Um, and there's lots of stuff going on. And you can learn more about it on umcmission.org. There are a couple of things that I want to point out. Uh, we see this kinsman redeemer in Boaz, but I don't want us to confuse that with a white savior or an American hero figure. Um, a person with power and money from a Western culture with this perceived um, idea of superiority and intellect or resources going to help someone who has less the poor person, the marginalized in another place. I don't want to perpetuate the idea that this church or any church or any individual is saving anybody. Really, the saving, the redeeming work belongs to God. And God allows us and invites us, all of us, into that work to come alongside God. And if you've ever lived or worked in a, in a place that is vastly different than your own culture, you probably quickly realized that all of your education and experience doesn't get you that far. <laughs> that was my experience anyway. Um, but truly, a kinsman redeemer gives us this idea of family. And as followers of Jesus, we are joined as family with other brothers and sisters across the world. And mission gives us the opportunity to connect with those brothers and sisters and maybe even play a part in redeeming each other. I also want to talk about the word mission. So this, this word mission stirs up lots of different ideas for us. Um, for some people, they think about sharing, well, they think about bringing Jesus to the farthest and darkest corners of the world. But guess what? Jesus is already there, right? Uh, some people think about giving time or money. They think about helping people. And maybe some people think about the harm and destruction that is done through Christian mission. Uh, but hopefully, many of you get these ideas and images of transformation that God brings through our engagement with mission. People are transformed through new life in Christ. Women and families are transformed through small loans and skills trainings. 
or maybe food for today and security for tomorrow in the case of Ruth and Naomi and the work done through this church with Havenwood. There are children's lives being transformed through basic health care and clean water, and my kids are included in that. We needed that, that health care um, for them when we were in Mozambique. There are refugees and asylum seekers being treated as humans and received as those that bear the image of God. And we have Christians around the world growing in their faith and their knowledge. God's good news and mission can bring transformation for us personally and for those we are in mission with. And not just for individuals, but for broader cultural, socioeconomic, and political context. And this is a deeply Wesleyan held understanding of missions. I want to share a definition from the mission theologian for global ministries, Dr. David Scott. The definition that he uses for mission is that it's cultivating relationships across boundaries for the sake of fostering conversations in word and deed about the nature of God's good news. I like that definition. So for everyone who gets a little antsy about missions, like someone might come to you and ask you to bring a group of youth to Haiti, that might make you nervous, or um, maybe to take food to people that you don't know or don't feel like you relate to. Um, this is for you. It's about cultivating relationships across boundaries or cultures. And think about all of those opportunities you have right here in this beautifully diverse place of Bentonville. And for those folks who get really shy about talking about God's good news, it's about conversations in word and deeds. It's, um, so sometimes this looks like the hands-on stuff that us Methodist folks really like to get into. But remember that conversations and relationships go both ways. As we engage in mission, we are both giving and receiving the message of God's goodness in the world. We need to be formed by each other we have something to learn from each other so that we may all be redeemed and transformed for God. This is the legacy we establish as the connected body of believers, a legacy that allows the support given inside these walls to be multiplied outside the walls. And whether your calling is doing or serving, going or listening, giving or receiving, there is a place for that in the big church, and we are all called. What moves you? Hopefully, today, as we've talked about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and how that connects with mission, you remember the ones that came before them and the one that came after them, Jesus. But also, we want you to think about how that book informs your lives. How does it challenge you in discerning the legacy you leave here in Bentonville at this church and beyond as we embody the light of Christ to others. What's your next move? Amen. Just before we re retired, we were trained by UMCOR to be long-term volunteers, which means we would agree to go somewhere for a minimum of two months or a maximum of two years. 
One of our favorite in Europe was when we went to the Czech Republic. And there we did conversational English for three months. And that was really fun. We also liked staying in the United States and doing things close to home and got involved in working at Sager Brown, which is an UMCOR mission in Louisiana. So UMCOR is an acronym that stands for United Methodist Committee on Relief. And basically they're organized to um, mobilize volunteers to help when there's either a natural disaster or a human-made disaster. So it could be tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, whatever. Fires. Fires. So we got involved with Sager Brown, which is a um, di distribution center for disaster relief for UMCOR. It is so well organized. There's always, there's something for anybody of any ability to any do and, f yeah, and feel that they're accomplishing something. But yet, we're not overworked, so there's plenty of time for fellowship and to meet new friends from around the country, as well as to meet the people in your church that you don't know and, and become a team with them. The reason we chose the hygiene kits was because at this time, that was their, their top priority. The interesting thing is our church is putting together 100 kits, which is, um, costs about $1,500. And that, that's fantastic that we could come together and do that. This past year, they sent out 45,000 feminine hygiene kits to disasters. So this is a really big operation. And as Kathy and I know firsthand, it is well organized. and. For anybody that's interested in volunteering for it, you'll really feel like you're doing something. I love Jesus, and I'm thankful for the blessings and the life that I've gotten through being a Christian. And it calls me to action and doing things to help other people. And the, and the sign in front of Sager Brown says, um, the Wesley uh, Pledge, which is do all you can for, help me with this. <laughs> yeah, do all you can, all the good you can, and all the places you can, all the ways you can. Just, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Sermon Podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you would like to let us know you were here, follow the link below to connect. To participate in worship through giving, you can give online at fumcbentonville.org or on Venmo at fumcbentonville. FUMC Bentonville welcomes all. Because we believe the communion table is God's table, we invite everyone into our church family. We welcome and celebrate every race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, age, physical and mental ability, national origin, economic station, and political ideology. We come together in action and outreach, aspiring to follow Jesus' example of radical hospitality, love, and grace as a transformative movement in our community. Please join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., both in person and on Facebook Live. All are welcome, and we'd love to have you with us. Grace and peace.